I'll be reading from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then following that, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. And then in John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Amen. Good morning. It's fall again. So, how was school? I got some shaking ahead. I heard some goods. I heard a whole lot of silence like, we don't talk about school on the weekend. You know, we could come up with a musical instead of we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about school. Oh, oh, no, never mind. If you got kids, you get it. If you don't have kids, don't worry about it. Hey, thanks everybody for wearing name tags today. Uh, we're going to be doing this the next couple weeks as we come back out of summer. Uh, you know those people that you met before summer, you can't remember their name? This is the chance to go to them and say, hello, Aaron, without asking their name. Right? It's just a chance to refresh our memories. It helps it so we can know each other a bit better. And we'll do it throughout the year, probably when we have potlucks or stuff like that, just so we have that opportunity. So thanks for being a part of that. And the next few weeks when you come in, just put a name tag on and come on in. And uh, we're glad you're here. As we move into our message, uh, this fall, we're going to be doing an overview of the book of Jeremiah as our sermon series looking at both the message in Jeremiah, but also who the person is. I've been studying the book of Jeremiah since early spring, preparing for this series, and in doing that, I've just been reminded again and again of the beauty of Scripture and how deep and rich it is. Uh, there are scholars who have dedicated their whole career, their whole life to studying the book of Jeremiah. And so I want to give you some context and uh, maybe taper expectations. In eight or nine weeks... We're just going to touch on the surface of some of the major themes and pieces in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it'll be far from being comprehensive. Uh, I realized as I was preparing the series, we could study this for years as a church on Sunday mornings. Um, easily. So, but what I would encourage you to do is, over the coming months, read through Jeremiah a few times. Maybe read through it once a month. Um, just so you're familiar with it and you get into that content... Um, it's a very interesting book, and we'll be talking about that. Um, 
Now, you might be wondering, why Jeremiah? Well, it's a good question. In all honesty, uh, this began with just a simple nudging of the Spirit. And as we explored the idea, I ran the idea past some people and asked them to pray and reflect on it. And uh, again and again, it came back saying, yes, we think this is what God would want for us. This is what would be valuable for us in this season. And as I've studied it, I've really seen the relevance to our world today. And so I hope you find that too as we work through it. So the goal for us today as we start making this journey through Jeremiah is to set the scene of the book for us. Uh, We start in the beginning in the first three verses, which uh, Gerhard just read for us. Thank you for that. Um, Just three verses. Uh, And if you have your Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, feel free to open up to Jeremiah 1, verses 1 to 3. And these first three verses are basically the the prologue to the 52 chapters of Jeremiah. Now, I remember back in the day, if I picked up the book, um, I know I would skip over any prologue or introduction and just go right to chapter 1. My thought was, why waste time on stuff that wasn't labeled a chapter? If it wasn't worthy to be a chapter, how good could it be? Over the years, I've started reading more and more of the introductions and the prologues, and I realized my mistake. Uh, The prologue is often key and gives context to understanding how to read the rest of the book. It gives insight, context to what the book is going to accomplish. So, the first three verses of Jeremiah are just that. They are the prologue. Now, as we read Jeremiah, we're going to see all sorts of warnings and prophecies for the people of Judah, among others. But the book of Jeremiah itself is not a book of warning. It's a book to help people understand what happened when those warnings that Jeremiah had preached ceased being warnings and became reality. So as we look at Jeremiah, we're going to glean some of the understanding from these first three verses this morning. And in doing that, we're going to jump around these verses a bit to help us get that context to see how it's not about a warning as much as how to deal with reality. And the first three verses give us a bit of an insight into that. So we're going to begin by looking at the end of verse 3, where we read, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Just a simple phrase. Now, this tells us right here and then, This book is being given to people after the exile happened. This book is not meant, was not given out as a handbook of how to avoid exile. This book was, came out of Jeremiah's ministry, which warned about the potential of exile and what that would look like. But this book is being written and given to people after they were in exile, after everything Jeremiah talked about had happened. The book of Jeremiah is given to bring understanding to what and why Judah as a nation is no more and why the people are exiled to Babylon. But in some ways to say they were exiled waters down what really happened if you don't know the history. You see, the events of Judah leading up to the exile are traumatic on 
the national level. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have experienced trauma before. I suspect actually quite a few of us have on some level. But when we are traumatized, it changes our life. It changes how we live, how we think, how we respond. For some, the memories of the trauma are so bad, it becomes debilitating. Think PTSD, which we hear about in the news. Sometimes trauma, though, isn't a personal thing. It's a communal thing shared with those around us. Now, I've had a few small traumas in my life, which I'm thankful that they were small on the scale of what they could be. But really, I've only been a part of one larger trauma that affected a whole community. On my 11th birthday in 1987, I was swimming at the local pool. And all of a sudden, the pool lights were dimmed, an emergency horn was sounded as we were urged to the edge of the pool by the lifeguards. We were then told to go get changed and evacuate the pool due to a storm. As my brother and I were changing, I remember my dad rushing in to the change room to grab us and get us going. As we drove home, the sky was pitch black with a green tinge to it in a way I'd never seen before. And I heard from the radio the word tornado. We made it home, and we were fine. But that day, an F4 tornado tore through Edmonton and was on the ground for an hour with a path of destruction 30 kilometers, over 30 kilometers long and in places over a kilometer wide. 27 people were killed on my birthday that day. And over 300 homes were destroyed. That was July 31st, 1987, a day known as Black Friday. You know those Black Friday sales we have? It means something very different to me when I hear that word, Black Friday. And that was a day that changed Edmonton. I know myself I was changed. I hadn't been hurt. The tornado didn't destroy my house. But looking back, I was traumatized on some level. I spent the following years searching for all the understanding I could on tornadoes and how they happened, reading all the books in the school library that I could find. I was terrified of thunderstorms. It took over a decade for me to return to a space of being normal again when there were storms. Though still to this day, my daughters and my wife will attest, I'm still cautious when it comes to storms. And leading up to the storm, I'm often outside curiously looking at the sky. The whole city of Edmonton was brought to a standstill that day and the weeks to come, sharing in the corporate trauma, and it changed the city of Edmonton in, in the time afterwards. We've seen trauma in communities again and again through war, illness, oppression, or any number of things. But in reality, the trauma in Edmonton it's just a fraction of the trauma Judah would have experienced leading up to their exile. Their religious, economic, and political reality was thrown into complete disarray. Their country was ruined. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was desecrated and dismantled and hauled off to Babylon. And before all of that, Jerusalem was under siege with nothing getting in or out of the tower for two years. 
Now, we've been in a weird season for the past two years. We all know that. But thankfully, we've always been able to get the supplies and things we need, even though maybe it wasn't as convenient as we would like. But back in the day when a city was under military siege, it was horrible. So horrible that Jeremiah speaks about the siege and makes reference to the people possibly turning to cannibalism to survive since no food was coming in. Think about that. That's how horrible and destructive and traumatic a siege was. No food coming in, nobody getting out. Basically, you're imprisoned in your own home as those outside try to outweigh you until you die or surrender. The image of cannibalism is a harsh one. And it should give us a sense of level of the trauma the people corporately shared. Jeremiah is written to help those people who went through that trauma to understand what happened but also, more importantly, even to answer some questions like, where is God? Is God still there? Does God even care? For us, God is an intimately personal relationship and experience. But that hasn't always been the case in the world. For Israel and all nation states at that time, the reality of your God was a reflection on the power and victories a country had. The power of their God for any nation was connected with who they were as a nation. If you were winning and powerful, then your God was powerful too. If you lost, your God was defeated. So following the defeat of Judah... We find the people traumatized, their country destroyed, the very temple of God in ruins. And it leaves them with the question, what happened with our God? We thought he was the Lord God Almighty. We thought he was all-powerful. Is our God still there? How could this happen? That's what Jeremiah is here to answer. Jeremiah is not there just to give simple answers as information, but to help reframe the understanding of a people who were deeply traumatized. The whole book itself, if you read Jeremiah, is chaotic in its outline and how it's structured. People have argued for years trying to understand what the outline of Jeremiah's book is. You know, if you were a teacher in school and your student wrote a book like Jeremiah, you'd probably get an F for how you structured it because there's no structure, it seems. It's all over the place. There's no chronological order to it. There's no consistency for who's to blame. It's Israel to blame. No, it's Babylon to blame. No, it's God to blame. It's all over the place. But in more recent studies of Jeremiah, a new trend has come out where they've applied cultural trauma studies to the book of Jeremiah. And when you apply that study to Jeremiah, the book's outline and order and content 
begin to make more sense. The book is not written for healthy people sitting around in coffee shops chit-chatting. It's for people who are traumatized and wounded and hurt, whose lives have been turned upside down. People who are seeking understanding and trying to find meaning in the midst of all that they've been through. People who are seeking healing and a way forward through the mess of life. And the book of Jeremiah provides that answer. An answer not just for them, but an answer that I believe is fully realized in God's work in the world and the gift of Jesus the Messiah. This is not a book of warning. It's a book that's meant to help bring healing and understanding in the midst of trauma. So we know Jeremiah is written to those in exile. But what about the rest of the three verses we're looking at this morning? Well, the next part we're looking at is how the word of the Lord, <laughs> sorry, about Jeremiah's word where he's speaking. And it introduces verse 1 that way. Um, and we're introduced to Jeremiah, son of Hil Hilkiah, where it talks about the word of Jeremiah. That's just how it starts off. This is the word of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah. And we're told other things. He's a priest uh, at Anathoth. And this actually tells us something important about Jeremiah, that yes, he's a priest, an intercessor for God, but he's outside the power structures of Jerusalem. He's not someone people look to for authority, for power. Um, he's not in a place of power or control. Rather, he's far from it. But he is part of a priestly family, and, and one that had actually been banished by King Solomon to a non-Judean town called Anathoth. We're also told he's a Benjaminite, the same family that King Saul was from. Now, what we learn from this is Jeremiah is on the fringe of Davidic royalty and the Solomonic temple space. In other words, Jeremiah is on the fringe of both the religious and political powers that control Jerusalem. He's not one of them. He's from the outside. Jeremiah is not a political player. He's not someone in control or with the relationships and power to control others. That's not his game. Yes, he has a priestly role, but he's an outsider. He's on the outside looking in. He's most definitely not who the people would look to for answers. So the start of the first chapter begins with who Jeremiah is, even though maybe not a flattering look, not like, hey, this is the great prophet Jeremiah. But it then moves on to where Jeremiah was ministering when Jeremiah was ministering. Now, the book of Jeremiah gives us a time frame of 40 years from the 13th year of King Josiah. Do you remember King Josiah? He was the child king who rediscovered the book of the law, renewed the covenant. It was during his 18th year of Josiah's reign that they rediscovered the book of the law, and he made major reforms and tried to bring people back to God. So we can date this, that Jeremiah's ministry begins in 627 BCE. And we're told it ends in 587 when the temple falls, which is given to us as the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. Now, we need to remember, first off, that in biblical times, history was recounted in terms of which king was on. It wasn't, well, this happened in... 
1987. It was during the reign of this person is how they would have seen it. That's how they recorded what happened. Everything happened in the context of who was king. So this happened during this person's reign. That event happened during that person's reign. So what we're seeing is a normal way of recounting history. But there are some things we need to uh, be careful to note in this. First, Jeremiah's ministry time is given to us as 40 years when we do the calculations. Where else have we heard the number 40 before? Anyone? 40 years in the wilderness. What else? 40 days fasting. Sorry? Jesus tempted 40 days. 40 days of rain. Sorry? The flood, yeah. Moses lived 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, 40 years leading the people of Egypt. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights receiving the law. Jonah warned ancient Nineveh for 40 days. The priest Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to symbolize Judah's sin. So I think it's safe to say 40 is a pretty important number when we find it in Scripture. Fair? We should pay attention. Now, this 40 is a little hidden to us because we don't know these dates off the top of our heads. But when we do the math and the work, something the original readers would have picked up probably a lot more naturally than us, we find the dates given for Jeremiah are 40 years. Now, I want to digress for a second. We should not take the dates and names of kings as complete or fully literal. That might upset some people because you have to read the Bible literally. There's a point being made in this by Jeremiah having 40 years. Ancient Hebrew writing was more focused on communicating truth through imagery and patterns such as the number 40 than it was on recounting history in complete detail or even complete accuracy always. And by that I mean sometimes things are left out to make the point they're trying to make. Reality is we still do that today, we just don't want to admit it. We tell our side of the, I, I remember being a kid, I would always say, well, they did this and this and this to me, and I never talked about what I did. But that was the history. So this still happens today. So don't be shocked by this. You see, if Jeremiah's dates were 40 years of ministry, there's something wrong in the book of Jeremiah because there's dates beyond those 40 years mentioned in Jeremiah. We know that his ministry was bigger than that 40 years based on the historical accountings that are in the book of Jeremiah. Okay? They're trying to make a point, which we'll get to. And when we see the list of kings regarding Jeremiah, we see Josiah uh, mentioned three times. But we could also, might not realize, there's two kings missing from the list that are left out. Jehoahaz, who was exiled to Egypt, Jehoiakim, who was exiled to Babylon. So the list of kings is not complete, but it is making a point. Now, if you look at the golden age of the monarchy in Israel, of David and Solomon, it's an 80-year time frame split evenly by the two of them, each serving 40 years. They are the two of God's appointed kings, right? 
So when we see Jeremiah, an outsider, attributed 40 years of ministry, the image needs to be picked up that this man, this Jeremiah, this outsider, has been appointed by God. The other image of kings is of Josiah who dies young, Jehoiakim who reigns for three months, and Zedekiah who witnesses the downfall of the kingdom and the temple. The king, kings that people put their hope in has failed. The point? The kings of Israel are not the ones to look to and put your trust in. They are not in control. And the one God overall, the Lord God Almighty, is still in control despite all that's happened. And he had put in place Jeremiah. He appointed Jeremiah who was an outsider. He was God's chosen one to bring the word of the Lord to the people. So what it's saying is what this book says is from God. And God is still Lord over all things, even through the trauma and the horror and the disasters that they've endured. Now, I want to digress again a little bit to build on this argument about it being God at work. The book of Jeremiah starts off by mentioning that the book is the words of Jeremiah. So that said once, right? If you go to verse 2, it's quickly trumped in verse 2 where it says, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Jeremiah. And then in verse 3, there's a reference to the word of the Lord again when it says, and through the rain. Or as translated in some translations, it, meaning the word of the Lord, came also in the days of Jehoiakim. So one mention of the word of God, word of Jeremiah, two mentions of the word of God. So if we check our scorecard, the word of God, the word of the Lord, trumps the word of Jeremiah. That's a very intentional inclusion in the writing. To say that what is in this book is the word of the Lord. That no matter what happened, no matter how it may look with other nations defeating Judah, the word of the Lord is there. God is there. The God who speaks the word is still sovereign and at work. Just not through the people that Judah would have expected. Not through the kings, not through the temple priests. Instead through an unknown priest who is an outsider named Jeremiah. So I think there's three things I want us to see in this passage to set the scene for the rest of the book. First, the book recognizes and acknowledges right out the trauma and grief and brokenness of Judah. They are exiled. It names it right out. They're not at home anymore. They're in exile. They've been through the absolute worst that they could have been through. Then, it highlights that God has appointed an outsider... Jeremiah is not someone from the power systems, but someone appointed by God. And that God is still sovereign. That he has the right, as God, to exercise his ruling power over creation as he sees fits. He appointed Jeremiah, as we've seen 
noted by the 40 years. It is his word that is at work. And the kings and powers of Judah and the world pass by and are not the authority. They're not the ones in control. Only God is. God is sovereign. And that is the undergirding message of all of Jeremiah, that God is sovereign over all things, even in the midst of the trauma and suffering of Judah. God is in control. God never lost control. He is God over all. Now, as we journey forward, we're going to see that that raises all sorts of questions. And so it should. But for a people who are traumatized, a people whose home has been torn apart, whose religious structures are demolished, and whose identity is left shattered and in ruins, the book of Jeremiah begins with three verses that are saying, I have appointed Jeremiah to share my word with you, for I am still sovereign over all things, no matter what you went through. But even during the trauma and moving forward, so listen, for I am the Lord your God. And the people of Judah might not like the explanation of why they are where they are. But there's something they can root themselves in when they realize that it is their God that is in control and not the foreign gods of other nations. The word of the Lord is being spoken. And that is something that continues today and that we understand better than ever. We read earlier from John chapter 1 when we realized that the word of God was spoken at creation and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the word of God is God and was there in the beginning and brings light into the darkness. The people of Judah are dealing with incredible darkness in their exile. And yet in Jeremiah there's this promise of hope still And we see that ultimately, the hope that was in their future, when we look to Jesus, we see that hope realized. And we know that Jesus is the word of God. That God is sovereign, and the hope that Jeremiah is pointing to as being distant is realized fully in Jesus. So ultimately, Jeremiah is going to point us in the direction of looking for the Messiah. And it's a reminder that even in those times that are darkest, the word of God is present, whether it's through scripture, through people such as Jeremiah speaking the word, or the eternal, never-ceasing word of God, Jesus Christ, who is present in the world today through the Holy Spirit. The point of Jeremiah's intro is that God is sovereign, is recognized in Jesus, who is not only the light in the darkness, But the darkness does not overcome the light, we're told. But Jesus is the very one who overcame death with life. He is the one who brings us hope. He is the incarnate word of God speaking life and salvation and redemption and hope to us. And ultimately is a word made flesh that will restore all of creation when Jesus returns. It is in Jesus that the hope of Judah resides. The hope that Jeremiah will proclaim And our hope all intersect when Jesus returns in glory, making all things new. So in the meantime, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a choice. 
Do we look at the book of Jeremiah in Scripture in our lives as just history passing us by? Our world tells us that what we want should center around us, that we are what matter, but the story of God is different. See, we have a choice like the people of Judah did. We live in a world that leaves us traumatized by the sin and brokenness of it. And we might not word it that way, but I think we've grown numb to the sin of the world and at times even to our own sin. To, we, we don't even realize how sin has decimated the world in which we live and the effects of it and how far we are from what God created and intended the world to be. So in that trauma of the sin of the world, we're forced to choose. Do we see God as sovereign? What does that mean? Well, let's start here. The divine sovereignty of God means living in the story of life where God is the main character and not us. It means living in the story of life where God is the main character and not us. That is so counter to the world. Where we're told again and again, it's all about me. Divine sovereignty means it's all about God. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Will you live in this world in all areas as if God is the main character and not you? I hope we can draw hope that the triune God, the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the eternal God, is at the center, not just at the center of the story of the world, but God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world because he loved us, meaning that God wants to be at the center of our stories, not just the world's story. So will you choose to live your life with God at the center of all that you do? Will you let Jesus, the word made flesh, bring light into the dark parts of your life so you can let God reign fully in your life? You may have made that decision a long time ago or recently, but I need to tell you, the sovereignty of God is a daily, an hourly decision. To yield our life to Christ, the King of Kings, and live for Him means making God the center of our story. Please bow with me in prayer. Jesus, you lived and taught us about how to live in this world in a way that was different, where it wasn't all about me or us, but about living for your kingdom and your way. You were showing us how to make you sovereign in our life. May your spirit work in us and challenge us daily to make that decision when the world would pull us away from you and have us focus on ourselves. May your spirit work in us to drive us to live for you in all things, to allow you to permeate our life in all ways and realize that when we center our lives on you, when we make you the main character in our story, we are blessed by being a part of your kingdom in your way. May we see the fullness of that in our lives each and every day.
even when we're in the midst of difficult times. In your name we pray. Amen.